Hello out there. Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we take a deep look at opportunity in America today and how housing fundamentally shapes that opportunity. This is your host, Mike Kaprowski. I'm the National Director of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. Research is increasingly showing that housing is a foundation for virtually everything. It predicts what kind of neighborhood you'll grow up in, the quality of school you'll attend, your access to transportation and amenities. Housing shapes segregation patterns, the crime levels of your surroundings, job opportunities, exposure to certain health risks, your friends and social networks. Housing policy is school policy, health policy, economic policy, civil rights policy, and more. Few things shape our opportunity more than housing. We have lots of evidence about it, and yet housing is often overlooked by our leaders and our policymakers. On today's episode, we have Richard Kallenberg, who is a senior fellow at the Century Foundation with expertise in education, civil rights, and equal opportunity. Rick has been called the intellectual father of the economic integration movement in K-12 schooling and is arguably the nation's chief proponent of class-based affirmative action in higher education admissions. He's an authority on teachers' unions, private school vouchers, charter schools, labor organizing, and inequality in higher education. He's a bona fide education superstar and a thought leader, uh, but more recently he's turned an eye toward housing policy, uh, which we'll talk more about. Uh, Rick's articles have appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal. He's appeared on all the major TV networks and MSNBC, Fox, NPR, and more. He graduated from Harvard College and later Harvard Law School. Uh, I first connected with Rick when I was in Dallas. I was in the Dallas school system, and we were in the early stages of planning to integrate some of our new choice schools. And I had read his book on school integration. It really changed the way that I looked at public education. And I, I sent him an email in the off chance that maybe he might respond and give me some advice on how to proceed. And he did. And we hopped on the phone and, and we've stayed in touch since. Um, so Rick's thought partnership helped us turn our Dallas efforts into a success. And Rick, it's, it's great to have you on, on the podcast. Welcome. Oh, well, well thanks so much, Mike. And I, I, a big fan of your work as well, so uh, this is fun to do. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. This will be fun. Uh, so I wanted to start by asking you about kind of your career trajectory. You know, you've spent most of your career uh, focusing on a variety of education issues. Uh, talk to the audience about kind of the primary issues that you focused on within the education sector. Well, uh, I, I dealt primarily with the question of, of segregation in education, both in, in K-12 through education and, and higher ed. Uh, we have fundamentally separate and unequal systems uh, of education some 60 plus years after, after Brown versus Board of Education. And I've been focused particularly on the rising economic segregation in our schools. Uh, there's research going back more than a half centuries to suggest that uh, economic segregation is bad for, for all students, uh, students of particularly for, for low-income students. And so even though uh, that's a, a formidable task to take on, uh, it's, it's something that, that I think is important. And so I've uh, written a number of, of, of books and articles on, on that particular aspect of educational inequality. 
Yeah, and you've been a real great thought leader in that, and and, and challenging um, educators on on the ref, you know on, on all sides of the aisle to really um, think through this issue. I think I think you would would agree with this generally that it seems like the past few decades of education reform have sort of embodied, I guess you could call it a, a neo-Plessian logic that we've essentially accepted separate schools and we've spent the past couple decades trying to figure out how to make them more equal. That, hey, we're, you know, we're going to have segregated schools, low-income kids, often kids of color, will attend their schools, wealthy kids, often white, will attend their schools, and let's figure out how to make this more equal through school-based reform. And then you have conversations around balanced literacy and the debate over smaller class sizes and teacher evaluation and early childhood. And all of those, of course, deserve to be debated and discussed. Um, We don't want to minimize those, but it seems like we've sort of forgotten lesson number one of Brown, that separate is inherently unequal, that before we get to that other stuff, we can't have kids from different economic and racial backgrounds attending separate schools, which is essentially the case in America today. Have you been frustrated by sort of the the education reform movement and how uh, this issue of segregation has really not been um, a, a big topic of conversation. Oh, it's, it's extremely frustrating. So, you know, 90 to 95 percent of education reform is is going back to that question, how do we make separate but equal work? How do we make it mm-hmm. fair? Yeah. Uh, and listen, I'm, I'm all for efforts to try to improve high poverty schools, Sure. Uh, given that, that uh, so many of them do exist in our country, but at least we should be spending uh, you know, half of our time talking also about how to reduce segregation itself, because it's, it's not inevitable. Uh, it's the product of public policies. Mm-hmm. And, and furthermore, uh, there's research going back many years to suggest that the most important school factor related to academic achievement has to do with the socioeconomic status of the classmates that uh, are in a school. So the biggest predictor of academic achievement overall is the uh, socioeconomic status of the family that a child Mm -hmm. comes from. But then the second biggest is the socioeconomic status of the peers. And this uh, research has not been rebutted, and yet uh, we, we spend very little time trying to address that question. I would say we're seeing some some positive uh, movement in this direction. When I started, there were only two school districts that were promoting socioeconomic diversity, and now we're up to a hundred uh, that mm-hmm. are doing so. So there's you know there's some positive news here, but overall, uh, we need to be paying much more attention to to the issue of economic and racial segregation of our schools. Yeah, that, absolutely, and, and so. More recently, though, you've turned some of your attention to housing, right? And I mean, it's long been said that housing policy is school policy, but you've started to do some serious thinking and writing around the intersections of these two issues, and you've begun to sort of tie this this new work around housing policy to your career's work of school segregation, and as we know, they're inextricably linked. So... Um, what, what caused you to kind of turn an eye toward housing policy at this point in your career? Well, uh, I, I've, you know, for many years have been arguing for greater choice within the public school system in order to promote more diversity. And I continue to think that's an important uh, effort. But the reality is that 75% 
of students attend neighborhood public schools, yeah. schools in which uh, they are assigned mandatorily based on what sort of neighborhood their parents can afford to live in. Uh, and given that continued nexus between housing and schooling, uh, I'm, I'm belatedly coming around to uh, what a number of, of your, your colleagues have, have recognized. Uh, which is that housing policy is school policy, and we have to get the first right in order to get the second right. Yeah, and and I think I I mean I had a sort of a, a similar sort of aha moment um, in, in Dallas where we were we were creating uh, these these creative enrollment strategies and, and getting kids to to come to these schools from all different parts of the city, and they were diverse by design, and we were reserving some seats at the school for higher income kids and some seats for lower income kids, but at the end of the day, we were still primarily a school system that assigned kids to school based on where they lived, and if you had segregated neighborhoods, you were going to have segregated schools and so there was there was a limitation to the enrollment strategies though very important and though um, those in and of themselves can be very robust as we've seen um, we also have to deal with the neighborhood situation um, so one of the bigger ideas that you've been writing about is this economic fair housing act uh, perhaps another way to say it is updating the Fair Housing Act to make housing more affordable. And this is where I want to spend um, most of our time today. And you and others like uh, Richard Rothstein have argued that housing is the unfinished business of the civil rights movement. And as we celebrate the Fair Housing Act, uh, you know, the 50th anniversary, it's, uh, it's clear that we've made insufficient progress. We remain a deeply segregated society today. And as Rothstein points out, and I think you reiterated in your report, that after the passage of the Fair Housing Act, it was not explicit racist policies that kept us segregated. It was primarily the lack of affordability, that affordable housing is not widely available, particularly in wealthier neighborhoods. Can you talk to this dynamic? That's right. Well, uh, clearly, the Fair Housing Act uh, of 1968 was a, was a huge advance for, for human freedom. We saw uh, the opportunity for middle-class African Americans and Latinos to, uh, to move into integrated neighborhoods. But left behind uh, were large numbers of African American, Latino, and Asian and white low-income families who uh, still were denied access to uh, middle-class, upper-middle-class neighborhoods not by just the marketplace, but also by active government policies that exclude people of modest means from entire neighborhoods and, related to that, entire schools. And so uh, this disproportionately hurts African Americans and, and Latinos. And so, so to my mind, it's, it's time to uh, supplement and update the Fair Housing Act of 1968 uh, to address some of these remaining issues of, of class segregation that uh, were not directly addressed in the uh, in the 68 Fair Housing Act. Yeah, and we're going to get into the um, this this idea of exclusionary zoning, which you've alluded to. But the you know a lot of times what you hear is. Um, 
you know, when you talk about economically segregated neighborhoods, a common response is, well, you know, that's the free market. That's capitalism. It discriminates based on what you can afford to pay. Not everyone can afford an expensive house. But you're making the argument that there's, yes, there is an element of capitalism there, but there's other stuff going on beyond just capitalism. There's one, there's the the long history of discrimination that has prevented people of color from gaining equal employment and living in communities of opportunity and uh, opportunities for wealth building. And that history is really clear. And as you said, it's it was in large part uh, engineered by government at all levels. Um, and so the practical effect is that, um, you know, whites can disproportionately afford more expensive of housing. There are big differentials between whites, the wealth of whites and people of color, between the incomes of whites and people of color. So you have that legacy. And then on top of that, there's this thing called exclusionary zoning. And I think this is what you were referring to when you talked about government policies that are exclusionary. Can you talk to us about what is exclusionary zoning? Yes. So, uh, so most people are familiar with the concept of zoning where uh, you don't want uh, industrial use directly uh, connected to a, a, a residential neighborhood. Uh, no one wants a, uh, you know, a cement factory, an oil rig, right, right next door to their house. Uh, right. But what exclusionary zoning does is to take that concept, basically that residence, residential areas shouldn't, uh, shouldn't have to suffer from legal terms and nuisances hmm. uh, and applies that to poor people so uh, the notion is that if you have uh, affordable housing if you have uh, multi-family units if you have uh, townhouses or apartments that that will be a nuisance and so uh, so what many jurisdictions do is to to say within this uh, swath of land, we will only permit single-family homes. Uh, yeah. We were going to bar uh, others, other types of units from, from coming in. And then some double down on that concept, and they say, not only that, but you have to have a quarter acre uh, right. lot. Yeah. You have to have half an acre or, or a minimum uh, house size. It, it's, it's economic zoning by the government that's excluding people uh, and, as we were discussing earlier, excluding their children from attending good schools. So, uh, yeah. so it's, 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 uh, it's, it's a real problem in our society. Yeah. And it's sort of, I mean, these, these policies create a, a math problem, right? I mean, it, you have large square footage requirements that the, you know, this, this detached single family home has to have, you know, 2,500 square feet, and it has to be on a particular lot size. And just sort of by definition, the more square footage, the larger the lot, the more expensive that home is going to be. And so when you have entire swaths of, of uh, neighborhoods that are zoned for exclusively detached single-family homes, it basically means that um, you know only the wealthy can access those most desirable neighborhoods with the best schools. And then in other parts of town, we zone for smaller apartments and townhouses, and those are smaller, denser, and more affordable. And so you sort of have this the, the, it's high-income families flow into areas with the most opportunity, and lower-income families are clustered in other parts of town in, in multifamily dwellings because they can't afford the large um, single-family homes. Um, and so, 
uh, I mean, this is just th this is incredibly uh, problematic for a number of reasons, as you said. What what's the problem with this? What what, what problems does it engender? We've talked about the this, this, the school piece, but what else is this causing? Yeah, well, there, there there are really two things going on with exclusionary zoning. The first is that it exacerbates segregation by by class and race, uh, and uh, ends up sorting. Uh, jurisdictions into wildly different neighborhoods with very different uh, levels of opportunity for, for families. Uh, the second thing it does, pernicious thing it does, is to uh, make housing less affordable. Uh, so when you create artificial scarcity by saying mm -hmm. within this particular area we're going to have a minimum lot size. So you can't build as, no, as many units as there might be demand for. You, you jack up prices um, by government fiat, not by, mm -hmm. uh, you know, not by the, the workings of the, of the marketplace, which is why, interestingly, uh, a lot of libertarians are, are opposed to exclusionary zoning, not so much from right. the equity perspective, but, uh, but from, the, from the idea that we're we're messing with the marketplace and uh, unfairly boosting the uh, property values in, in, in certain areas. So, uh, you know, it's when we when we talk about the affordable housing crisis in this country, it's really mind-boggling that not only are we you know not building enough enough government units, but here we're creating the affordable housing crisis in part through government action uh, uh, via these exclusionary zoning policies. Yeah, it's almost, it's skewing with supply and demand. It, yes. it, yeah, yeah. Um, so in in our country, who is wealthy and who isn't wealthy is correlated with race. And so this economic separation that you talk about is also uh, correlated with racial uh, separation as well. Um, can you talk to the interplay between those two things? Yeah. Well, it, it, it's interesting because uh, Richard Rothstein, who you mentioned before, yeah. has, um, has looked at the history of exclusionary zoning uh, and how it's connected to an older phenomenon known as racial zoning. So in the early 20th century, there were explicit laws in many parts of the country that said if you are uh, African-American, you cannot buy in this neighborhood because we've zoned it to be a white neighborhood. Uh, and and the, the laws worked vice versa as well. A white person would be forbidden from um, buying in a, in a predominantly African-American neighborhood. Now, you know, fortunately, the Supreme Court many years ago, recognized this was, this was blatantly unconstitutional. You can't be zoning by race. Uh, but Rothstein notes that as soon as that Supreme Court decision came down, uh, those who supported racial segregation quickly changed their tactic and, mm -hmm. and began adopting these exclusionary zoning policies that are basically zoning by economic economic wherewithal. And that had the effect uh, of excluding most African Americans uh, because in our society they are, are, are disproportionately low income, particularly in the early 20th century. And so, uh, so the, there really is a, a nefarious, uh, racist uh, 
impulse behind the, the early uh, economic exclusionary zoning laws in this country. Yeah, kind of a, a race-neutral way to still accomplish racial segregation. That's right. um, so if you, we fast forward to today. Um, what's your sense in terms of current exclusionary zoning policies um, and, and how frequently they are, in fact, motivated by um, racial animus? Yeah, it's, it's hard to know uh, precisely the degree to which racial prejudice plays in versus versus class prejudice. Um, mm-hmm. But either way, the exclusionary zoning laws are are today you know, widespread. They are found in, uh, in many jurisdictions. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, those who have, have spent time looking at this issue suggest that it's essentially uh, you know, a basic feature of our uh, of our American system much more so than, than in other countries. Uh, and uh, with, there's some irony that in some of the liberal jurisdictions, particularly in the Northeast, exclusionary zoning is, is particularly pronounced. So, mm-hmm. um, so the guilt is, is spread all around. Uh, it, it's not an exclusively Southern phenomenon or conservative yeah. phenomenon. It's really uh, quite widespread. Yeah. And so your your point is that even if there's not an apparent racial motivation for an exclusionary zoning policy, that still doesn't make it okay. Even if it's not racially motivated, these policies are still excluding working class and lower income people from entire neighborhoods, and it does real harm to them, right? I mean, it denies them access to the best schools and employment opportunities and wealth building opportunities and grocery stores and banks and recreation. Um, and it's, uh, you know, yeah, so, so the point is, it's, it, in practice, whether it's racially motivated or not, that doesn't make it uh, okay. Um, That's right. And, so, and, and I would say, yeah, in sure. fact, uh, you know, books like Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance had pointed out that the exclusionary zoning laws can affect uh, low-income whites as well, uh, yeah. who, who, who know exactly what's going on, that they are, they're not wanted in, in certain neighborhoods. Uh, so, so I think it's, it's particularly egregious when there's a racial motivation. I do think that makes it worse. Uh, but I think we have to come to a point in this country where we recognize that low-income and moderate-income people of, of whatever race should not be considered nuisances, should not be considered undesirable. Uh, you know, we have to recognize their, their common humanity. Sure, sure. And moreover, that there's, there's tremendous benefits for all people in mixed income neighborhoods and schools, that it's not just about there won't be any harm done if lower income people can access uh, wealthier areas. It's that there's there's actually a tremendous amount of mutual benefit that comes from living in mixed income neighborhoods and schools. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit to um, the, the well-established benefits that we know through research, both in terms of schools and neighborhoods, of what happens in a mixed income environment. Yes. Uh, well, Amy Stewart Wells at Teachers College Columbia has a has a wonderful report uh, that that talks about this really growing body of evidence to suggest that diversity makes us smarter. Yeah. Uh, that when children go to a school 
clear, there are students of different economic and racial backgrounds, that the learning is deeper, the problem solving is more creative, uh, because when students bring those different life experiences to the table, uh, they enrich the discussions and, uh, and the learning that goes on. This is, is something that you know, selected colleges recognized a long time ago, that, mm -hmm. that diversity would, would benefit everyone. And, uh, and increasingly, we're seeing uh, evidence of that at the, at the K-12 level uh, and indeed in, in, uh, in, in residential neighborhoods as well. Yeah. So I want to get into your uh, the specific recommendations for what you uh, would would advocate for in terms of a new and improved uh, Fair Housing Act. Fifty years later, um, you call it an economic Fair Housing Act, and you talk about uh, the need for a, a multi pronged approach. And first, you talk about the need to uh, strengthen existing efforts. Uh, to combat uh, discrimination. Uh, you talk about, you know, more funders for testers and compliance with the affirmatively for how, uh, furthering fair housing rules. Um, can you talk to how can we strengthen the existing mechanisms that are already in the Fair Housing Act? Yeah, well, I think that's, that's an very, very important to start with because uh, when I focus on the economic aspect, uh, I, some people are left with the impression that I think we can uh, you know, declare mission accomplished um, right. on on racial segregation and the racial segregation levels remain very very high. Uh, there continues to be discrimination based on on race, and so we really uh, need to ensure that there are, are resources put in place in order to ferret uh, uh, out discrimination where it happens and and, and punish it. Uh, so I think that has to be a, a big part of an economic fair housing act to, to recognize the, the nexus between racial segregation mm -hmm. and, and economic segregation. Uh, and the affirmative furthering fair housing requirement uh, goes, goes much more aggressively on this question. It's not just stamping out uh, discrimination, but, but saying that jurisdictions have an affirmative duty to uh, to try to integrate uh, neighborhoods through their their policies by by race and there's a an element of the affirmatively furthering fair housing act which also talks about concentrations of poverty so it has both of those um, both of those elements to it uh, as you know unfortunately that that rule has been suspended uh, by mm -hmm. the, the Trump administration and um, is, is no longer being uh, being enforced at the federal level, but but I've been encouraged that a number of local jurisdictions yeah. who started that process of, of uh, creating an affirmatively furthering fair housing plan have said, you know, whether or not the federal government's going to require us to do this, we we want we remain committed to the goal, and um, and so so all those things remain quite important. Uh, you know, we're seeing a, a small decline in, in racial segregation in this country. Uh, well, we've seen it since the 1970s, but it still remains far too high. So right. so addressing these racial issues continue to be very important. Yeah. 
And then, so so that's the those are some of the components where we could strengthen the ex, the existing components of the Fair Housing Act. And then, you talk about kind of the new idea, which is I think in your report you call it a, a frontal assault on exclusionary zoning. Um, and you argue that it could start at the state level and ultimately build into a federal effort. Um, so, what would be the primary components of an economic fair housing act in terms of these new ideas? Well, I think the you know the fundamental problem is that uh, localities are driven by uh, the NIMBY phenomenon, not in not in my backyard. And so, in order to get at some of these issues, we have to start higher up in the uh, process, so at the state level or, or even the federal level, mm-hmm. uh, where there can be a set of sticks and carrots uh, to encourage localities to, to curtail or, uh, or even eliminate exclusionary zoning policies. I think it probably makes sense to start at the, the discussion at the state level, just because, unfortunately, right now, the federal government doesn't, uh, not, none of the branches of the federal government appears particularly interested in addressing uh, issues of, of segregation and exclusion. Uh, but there are developments in, in states like California, uh, Massachusetts, uh, Washington State, where there are discussions around efforts to, uh, to reduce exclusionary zoning, uh, either by cutting off uh, funds to uh, localities that engage in exclusionary zoning, kind of the, uh, the, uh, the stick approach, or yeah. providing financial incentives for jurisdictions to reduce their their exclusionary zoning. So I think both of those uh, mechanisms are are important. And then at the federal level, uh, ultimately when the the stars are once again aligned and we have Mm -hmm. a a progressive Congress, a progressive president, uh, there are uh, important tools that that one can use uh, to, to put pressure on localities to reduce uh, exclusionary zoning. And um, there's a lot of federal money that, that flows to jurisdictions, and so the, the threat of cutting off that funding uh, can be a powerful uh, incentive. Uh, and in addition, we could provide those positive bonuses to uh, mm-hmm. localities that are, uh, are willing to take steps to reduce exclusionary zoning and open up their communities to people of all backgrounds. Yeah. And so we're, I mean, we're essentially talking about a, a, a state response or even a federal response to this. And I think the, the question that some would have is, well, how widespread is this exclusionary zoning problem? Does it really require that level of response? Is it that pervasive? Um, can you help us understand how widespread is this exclusionary zoning problem? Do we, have, have we been able to quantify where these policies exist? How many of them are there out there? Yes. Um, so, so researchers who've looked at this issue have used words like pervasive, uh, that it's uh, baked into the, the zoning uh, ordinances of, of jurisdictions throughout the, throughout the country. But we have seen uh, you know, certain areas where it's, it's, it's even worse in, in the Northeast and the Midwest. And so uh, 
those would be areas of, of real priority for for trying to reduce exclusionary zoning. Mm -hmm. And so, the, I mean, cons we talked about how there should be a alignment on really both sides of the political aisle in terms of opposition to exclusionary zoning. Um, liberals would like it because of, well, you know, some of the things that we're talking about today, but you would you would assume that conservatives would also uh, not be a big fan of it, would think of it as unnecessary regulation, excessive, uh, excessive government regulation, you know, let the market do its thing, let developers build more densely, it'll make housing cheaper. Why is there not pushback um, from conservatives on this? Is it a lack of awareness that this is driving higher prices? Uh, what what is why not the why not the outcry from from the right on this issue? Well, I, I think we're starting to see at least a a subset of conservatives raise mm -hmm. the question about exclusionary zoning. So there uh, are a, a number of very conservative economists who make a powerful case that this is unwarranted government intervention that is artificially driving up housing prices, uh, and so so there are some some conservatives who who uh, have that that uh, concern. Uh, the other thing we saw interestingly in California, where there was an effort to promote. Uh, integration and, and reduce exclusionary zoning. You had some conservative uh, uh, representatives from outlying areas, not, not, not in, in wealthy urban areas, who uh, quite frankly kind of wanted to stick it to uh, the people who they saw as, as liberal elites who were hypocritical. Mm -hmm on this issue. Yeah, and yeah. so so uh, so I think there's kind of a, a, a populist uh, sentiment that that crosses ideology uh, which suggests this, you know, the system is rigged uh, towards those who have wealth and um, and you know I would like it if conservatives felt uh, anger about that across the board but they seem to be particularly exercised when it's um, mm -hmm. Liberals in places like San Francisco who are engaging in exclusionary zoning, but there's an interesting possibility there of, of bringing bringing some more conservatives on on board on this issue because fundamentally this is an issue of, of, of government of, uh, interference in the marketplace that, that's right. having negative effects. Yeah, so, it seems like one of those issues that's just prime for the the strange bedfellows to to come together. Um, that's it's really interesting. Um, and so exclusionary zonings are, are primarily sort of local um, actions, but we also, when we talk about uh, the segregation, the re residential segregation that's pervasive throughout the country, we can't ignore the impact that federal policy has had on exacerbating segregation, right? It's not just been local action. There's been federal involvement here for a number of years. Um, wondering if you can talk to that uh, briefly in terms of uh, vouchers and LIHTC and, and what role has federal policy played in this segregation piece? Yes, well, uh, there are a number of, of federal housing policies uh, uh, related to you know, tax credits for building of, of low-income housing uh, Section 8 housing vouchers, or what we used to refer to as Section 8 housing vouchers, that are, um, you know, could be part of the solution because you could make sure that you direct 
all of those new efforts to provide affordable housing to high opportunity neighborhoods uh, that are now excluding uh, people of low income and moderate income. Uh, in fact, in too many cases, the opposite's happening. We're replacing federally subsidized uh, public housing in areas that already have high concentrations of, of poverty. And uh, the reason for doing so is you know, the land is often, often cheaper uh, and it's, uh, there's less political resistance to right. affordable housing. So some, uh, even some of our friends in the affordable housing community just kind of throw up their hands and say, well, if we want it to be built, it's going to have to go in these low opportunity neighborhoods. Uh, but it, there's kind of a parallel there to, to education where so many of our you know, well-intentioned um, progressive allies are, uh, are really focused on just making high poverty schools work. Uh, but I think that's that's very short-sighted. Uh, you know, the, the the recent research from from Raj Chetty at Stanford has has made it unmistakably clear that where you live matters tremendously to your life chances, and particularly the life chances of, of young children. And mm -hmm. so, uh, so it's really not serving the ultimate interests of disadvantaged families to to use federal public housing dollars uh, to, to further segregate us. Yeah, I was really struck when I was uh, reading your, your recent report um, in terms of the, um, uh, the, the, the school aspect of this. And I just want to uh, share a statistic uh, with the audience. Um, and, and it sort of makes the point that those on federal rental assistance tend to go to under uh, kids whose families are on federal rental assistance tend to go to underperforming schools. So the, the, among all American households across the country, uh, the median performance of their nearest school was at the 53rd percentile in proficiency for math and English. And so that's about what you'd expect. But for households that were receiving vouchers, their school was in the 26th percentile. For those living in public housing, it was the 19th percentile. For those in project-based Section 8, it was the 28th percentile. For those living in low-income housing tax credit units, it was the 31st percentile. So even when you look at education, those on federal rental assistance are, uh, dis are, are you know, disproportionately going to underperforming schools, and then when we know how that uh, can spiral. Well, that's that's right, and and what's heartbreaking about this is, uh, you know, there is a, a tremendous opportunity here yeah. uh, to provide these disadvantaged students with with much stronger educational um, environments, and, and so you know we have some contrasting uh, experiences in federal housing policy, such as the Moving to Opportunity program, mm -hmm. uh, where over the long term, in terms of when we look at the earnings of students, uh, they they benefited tremendously from having the opportunity to live in a neighborhood with with stronger schools and uh, and and more uh, a more uh, hospitable environment than than in segregated high poverty neighborhoods. Yeah, and then there's you know when we talk about these issues, there's 
there's fears about this, right? There's fears about eliminating these exclusionary zoning policies. And I think the, the fears or the, the, common, um, the common rebuttals come along, I think, three areas, at least that I've experienced and that you've, you've written about. One is there's an argument that, um, you know, if lower income people access wealthier neighborhoods, it will hurt property values, um, it will hurt school quality, and it will increase crime. Uh, those seem to be the three common ones, the property value issue, the school quality issue, and then the crime issue. How would you respond to that? Well, I, I think uh, you know, the evidence suggests that these fears are, are overblown uh, in terms of the property values. There have been a number of studies that look at what happens when affordable housing is placed in a, a, a mixed-income neighborhood or even a wealthier neighborhood. And those fears about declining property values uh, uh, are exaggerated. Uh, to the extent that there could be some change in, in property values, I think we have to look at the larger picture and ask uh, why that's going on. So, for example, if uh, there is an influx of families uh, who are African American or Latino, and that changes the property value in a, in a yeah. previously exclusively white neighborhood. Do we really want to say, well, that's a good argument for not allowing right. opportunity? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, do we want to kind of officially recognize racism as a, uh, as a valid argument against, right. uh, against these, these efforts? So I think that's, um, uh, that's important to, to look at. In terms of school quality, the evidence has never suggested that middle class uh, performance declines when uh, when we see uh, a mixed income environment um, so that has has, uh, has been widely uh, documented to be an unjustified fear uh, yeah. and in terms of crime there was an there was an article in the Atlantic a number of years ago by Hannah Rosen who uh, fed some of these fears that uh, that when you had public housing located in uh, more affluent neighborhoods, crime would increase. Uh, but the researchers who then subsequently analyzed those data really debunked that, that fear. Mm. Um, and, uh, and indeed, it's, it can be the concentration of poverty that, that increases uh, crime rather than the uh, policies that, that allow low-income families uh, better opportunity. Yeah, yeah. When there's a when there's a healthy mix right. instead of concentrations, right? Right. Yep. Well, we're we're almost out of time, but I wanted to. I have two, I have two questions left for you. The, the, this one is, you know, we we talk about eliminating exclusionary zoning policies and practices, which is which I would agree is certainly necessary. My question is. Do we also have to promote inclusionary zoning policies at the same time? In other words, is it enough to just eliminate exclusionary zoning, or do we have to get uh, more aggressive in promoting inclusionary zoning policies at the same time? Yeah, I, I think we need to do both. Uh, that reducing um, exclusionary zoning can be thought of as kind of the, the basic step that mm -hmm. any society should take to stop discriminate. Uh, but we know that that's not necessarily enough, um, that we need to take affirmative steps as well, uh, particularly as we see um, you know, the, the, the issue of, of, of gentrification 
playing mm-hmm. out in lots of cities where when people are low-income people are displaced. Uh, a concept of inclusionary zoning is that um, there there ought to be opportunities for for everyone to participate in um, in uh, high opportunity neighborhoods and, and in places like Montgomery County, Maryland, where they've had a long-standing inclusionary zoning policy that allows uh, that requires the building of a certain number of units for mm-hmm. disadvantaged families uh, in in new developments, uh, but children in those those neighborhoods have done tremendously well academically um, as compared to those who are in, in higher poverty neighborhoods, even when the higher poverty neighborhoods might spend more money per people. So, right. yeah. so inclusionary zoning is a very powerful and important effort that I think we, we need to uh, promote alongside of a reduction in exclusionary zoning. Yeah, we actually had uh, Heather Schwartz on uh, the podcast, I think it was last week, and we went really deep into the Montgomery County study. But oh, yeah, tre- tre- yeah, tremendous evidence in, in terms of um, what well-thought-out inclusionary zoning policies can actually look like. Um, so my last question is, might be a tough one. Um, so so the, the basic premise of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign, which we're working on, um, is that you know, if we had more robust and equitable federal housing policies that we could improve outcomes in an array of other sectors, education, healthcare, civil rights, economic mobility, homelessness prevention, that housing is simply foundational to outcomes in other sectors. And yet, and we've known this for, for quite a long time, as we've discussed, yet housing doesn't appear to be a national priority. Housing doesn't register as a top national priority, even though we know it's so foundational. So my question is twofold. Why do you think that housing doesn't really register as a top national priority? And two, how do we make it a top national priority? Yeah. Well, uh, I think the answer to your first question is that uh, housing, uh, housing integration in particular Mm-hmm. is seen as, as politically uh, impossible. <clears throat> Excuse me, politically impossible. Uh, <clears throat> if, if school integration is seen as a tough political sell, housing integration is seen as even tougher. Yeah. Uh, and yet, I think there is some evidence that this could be changing, uh, that uh, in I wrote a second report on, on efforts in California, Massachusetts, and Washington State to address exclusionary zoning. And uh, while those efforts, you know, people continue to, to struggle in those states, mm-hmm. uh, the key political change was to emphasize affordability. Uh, so I come at this kind of from a moral perspective that segregation is wrong and we should address that question. But what really resonates politically is the idea that exclusionary zoning is making housing unaffordable, including for some middle class people. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that's particularly true in, in California where even college educated uh, students who uh, you know, are starting their careers, are finding housing is unaffordable because, in part, of the exclusionary zoning that's going on. So, 
So I think there's 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 some hope there. Um, in terms of your your second question of what what can be done to make housing uh, more of a priority, I think I would say doing exactly what your your group is doing, yeah. uh, linking housing to the issues that people care deeply about, education uh, and health, and and the other uh, the other issues that that people can can grapple with a little more easily than they can than they can housing, and so uh, I, I guess coming back coming full circle to our the opening of our discussion, uh, just as someone like me who's involved in education has to grapple with, with housing, which is at the root of educational segregation. Mm -hmm. So too, people who are concerned about housing need to draw those connections to, to education. I remember talking with uh, David Rusk, who is a longtime mm -hmm. advocate of inclusionary zoning, and he said that when he would talk about housing units, people's eyes would glaze over. But then when he talked about, you know, we need to provide opportunity for kids, uh, there, are, there are no, you know, whatever, whatever adult people might think of low-income adults, we've got too many negative attitudes. Sure. People recognize that low-income children are completely blameless for their situation. They need opportunity, and they're not going to get it unless we deal with some of these issues of, of housing affordability and housing segregation. That are that are so prominent in our society. Yeah, well, that's a that's a great way to end. I think that's yeah, that's exactly what this campaign is about: is trying to break down these silos and uh, you know trying to get housers to grapple with these education issues and getting educators to grapple with these housing issues because uh, they're inextricably linked. So that was a a great way to to make full circle and, and end the podcast. And that's the point of the podcast: is to help raise awareness about these. Uh, these linkages and, and how important it is to, to wrestle with these issues. Um, so, Rick, I want to thank you so much uh, for, for doing this podcast. I really enjoyed it, learned a lot. Uh, I think the audience will learn a lot, too. I would urge the audience to follow Rick's work um, with the Century Foundation. Uh, Richard Kallenberg, the Century Foundation, you will see all sorts of stuff that he does. I'm a regular follower of his work, and I find everything you put out to be really interesting and thought-provoking and, uh, and really useful to to the work that I do on a daily basis. So I would urge everybody else to, to follow what you do, Rick. And, and again, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for your time. It's much appreciated. Oh, well, thank you, Mike, for all uh, this, this wonderful opportunity to, to discuss these important issues and, and for all the great work that you're doing. So, so thank you. Great. Thanks, Rick. <laughs>